Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. That came, that video came as a result of a study that finished up in 2015, or at least was that was published in 2015. Uh, that guy that you saw walking was 26 years old and at some point had gone through some kind of uh, injury that had left him a paraplegic. And what you just watched there is extraordinary. I mean, this guy, he had no control of his lower extremities. And through this study, they were able to make it to where he could tell his legs, hey, it's time to walk. As we continue the sign series, we're going to take a look at a a similar, uh, though even more amazing, situation. And and what it's going to do is give us another facet of the purpose of John's gospel, the purpose of this whole series. And we've said it again and again, but I want to remind us, just as a way of review, that that really the big picture here is that his signs, Jesus' signs, are intended to help us believe that Jesus is uniquely qualified to give us life. Okay? Big idea, you want to read John's gospel, this is what John's saying. Jesus is uniquely qualified to give us life. And as we make our way through the gospel of John and, and the signs that John has curated, so to speak, um, we're developing a picture of really what this kind of life looks like. When we say, well, he's offering life, um, what is this life, what does it really look like? And most of us have not, and, and I think, you know, at least statistically speaking, likely will not, overcome anything as dramatic as having been paralyzed, okay? Um, But what we're going to see today, if we can admit it to ourselves, is that we all have a need for something extraordinary, and it's something extraordinary that only Jesus can perform. And so I want to jump in. We're going to be in John chapter 5. We were in John chapter 4 last week. John chapter 5, verse 1 says this, after this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. And within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Okay, so stop here for a second. First, it says after this. After this is after what we read in chapter 4 when he was in Galilee. Jesus and his band of merry men and women were in uh, Galilee, in in Cana. And Jesus had just performed his second sign. He had healed this official son. You saw the title there. Um, And it says that sometime later, after this, we don't know exactly how long, but sometime later, he makes his way back, the three to four day journey, he makes his way back to Jerusalem for some festival. It's not Passover, it's some other festival in the Jewish calendar. And he's there, um, and really what happens here in John 5 is, is this is for John, uh, the, it encompasses all of Jesus' second year of ministry. So the first four chapters were the first year of Jesus' ministry, and now we've moved into year two of that ministry. So sometime later, there they are, and they make their way to this pool called Bethesda, and we're told that there's a large number of people there. There's this huge crowd that gathers at this pool, and why are they there? 
Well, well, the history, the, the background here is that that pool, were, the waters of that pool were spring-fed. And sometimes, just depending on what was going on geologically, the waters would, would get stirred up. That spring would start to kind of bubble. And, and so it came to be understood that there might be these healing properties in this spring. Now, you say, well, that's kind of weird, except that's something that people have believed even to this day. Okay, we have whole cottage industries of, of uh, vacations and, and tourism around going to springs and going to the springs and being, you know, at least rested or made well by participating, you know, partaking of the waters in these springs. And so at this time, there's this, this, this belief that, hey, if I'm ailing, if I can get myself into this spring, then maybe I've got a chance to get better. And so you have this large crowd that is gathered. But there's something more even going on. There's even more of a, an understanding of what might be possible or what might be happening here. And, and the key to knowing that is something you maybe have noticed. If you've got your own Bible, you're, you're reading along with me. You may be looking. You're like, okay, we just finished verse 3, and now it's verse 5. Wait, what? What happened to verse 4? Okay. And so if you look in, in your, your Bible, I didn't want to gloss over this, okay? you'll see there's probably a little note in your Bible that says, hey, verse 4, what happened? And, and what we're told is that there are some manuscripts, some of the ancient manuscripts included uh, the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4, what we would know as verse 4. And I want to read it for you and just explain. We're not going to get off in this. This is a whole other topic, but just real briefly, um, I want you to read what it would look like if we added that part back in. Okay, So this is the end of verse 3 and then going into this idea of verse 4. It says, Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water, because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time, and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment he had. Okay? So there's this further kind of superstitious belief that exists at this time. And sometime later, after John initially wrote his gospel and these manuscripts were being recorded, they were being copied over so that more copies existed, uh, this was added in as a way of explanation of, oh, well, this is really what people thought back then. And again, it's this whole study all on its own. Um, but this was just added later to provide further explanation. Now, if that bothers you, if that makes you uneasy, if you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? What else are they hiding from us? Okay, just understand this, that the kinds of t there's only a few times where something like this takes place in the Scriptures. And none, in no place, including this one, right, does it actually change anything important about our faith. Okay, it has nothing to do with changing the, the, the heart and of the gospel, the heart of who Jesus is or what he's done. Okay, so I just we'll put a pin in that for now. And if you have further questions, I'm happy to talk about it. But moving on, that's why you don't see verse 4. And that gives you a little bit more understanding of maybe what the people were thinking and why this crowd had gathered. Okay, so let's go on. Verse 5. It says, One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Okay, so here's what happens. Jesus and his band, they show up. There's this large crowd. They're at the pool. And among this large crowd of people, Jesus picks one man. And he's described as lame or disabled. What I'm going to call him is the invalid. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. But then Jesus asked him this question, do you want to get well? And you know, if you're paying attention and you're, you're engaged, invested at all, I think a proper response is, well, duh, <laughs> of course. 
Why else would he be there? That's why people go to the pool, is to get well, and he clearly isn't. So it seems like a pretty obvious, somewhat maybe even callous question. But as we've seen, when Jesus, we've seen this the last few weeks, when Jesus says something that seems out of place to us, it serves to bring about something that we, we need but isn't necessarily on our radar. So look at how he responds. Jesus says, just very simply, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. You see, I'm sorry, before that, sorry, getting ahead of myself. Jesus asked the question, how does the man respond? Well, the man responds, and he doesn't really answer the question that Jesus asks. He doesn't exactly answer Jesus' question. Instead, he asks, answers the question that he thinks Jesus is asking. Jesus said, do you want to get well? He thinks Jesus is asking, well, why aren't you healed? Why are you still here? And we can understand the man you know, thinking that. One, he doesn't know who Jesus is. There's no indication that at this point he knows anything about who Jesus is or has any expectation about what Jesus is about to do. In his mind, Jesus is just some guy who's asking an obvious question of someone who's had it pretty rough. And so again, we can forgive him for being a bit defensive. Well, look, Jesus, I don't know who you think you are, but I mean, clearly, I'm having a hard time here. We can forgive him for that. But, but check out then what happens next. Jesus isn't phased. And as we'll see, he picked this man for a particular purpose, and he's determined that this man will experience Jesus' power and compassion. And so what happens? Instantly, the man is healed. He tells him, get up, take your mat, and walk. And instantly, he does just that. This man who hasn't walked for 38 years. That, that guy we saw was 26 years old. This guy, for 38 years, has never walked. Many men in this day and age didn't even live to be 38. So he's lived with this for a long, long time. And instantly, in a moment, he's made well. Come back to that. And at this point, we can marvel at what Jesus has just done. But the key to understanding the why of this sign, right? Why does Jesus do this? is not what has happened. The key is understanding when it happened and who takes notice. Okay, so let's keep going. Verse 9 goes on. It says, Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, Pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So when does this take place? On the Sabbath. This is meant to be a day of rest. And there were all kinds of rules that had been built up around this day in terms of what could and could not happen on the Sabbath. But who takes notice? It's the Jewish leaders. And and they're already curious about the unusual things that have been happening around Jerusalem and the the outlying areas. But now, they take notice of what happened, and something's about to to shift. And before we come back to see how this plays out and why Jesus has healed this man on this day, I want us to just note something about the people that we've we've met so far. There's just a good Bible study suggestion, just recommendation. As you're reading the Bible, you kind of ask two big questions. One is, what does this tell me about man? And the other is, what does this tell me about God? And so first off, I just want us to see the human condition here. What, What does this tell us about mankind? Well, we need to see ourselves in the people 
that we've met so far. And we need to recognize this, that each of us, each of our lives is marked by weakness. Okay? Each of our lives is marked by weakness. We see this in, in the two people. We see this in the weakness of, again, what I'm calling the invalid. Some translations call him an invalid. And this is why I think it's a helpful term because it gives us a, a contrast that really gets at the heart of what Jesus has done here. Uh, we're going to go back to a little bit of a word geekery here. Okay? The, the word invalid, okay, here's the, just dictionary stuff. It, it's a word started 1542. It's a word that comes from a Latin word, invalidus. Okay, or invalidus. My kids know Greek or Latin better than I do. Okay, but in meaning not. And then validus, which means strong. It's a word which we get valor. Okay, so not strong. And so invalid is not valid. It means being without foundation or force, in fact, truth or law, being logically inconsequent. So it's a word that was developed around the realm of ideas. Right? An idea that is not valid, not strong. But 100 years later, the word takes on a little bit more meaning. It gets used to refer to not weakness of ideas, but weakness of body. And so it comes to mean in 1642, suffering from disease or disability, sickly, of, related to, or suited to one that is sick. And so then 70 years later, it goes from being just an adjective to being a noun. We're not going to say somebody is invalid. We're going to just call them an invalid, one that is sickly or disabled. And it's not, not meant to diminish their humanity. It's not meant to say you're not a, an actual person. It's just meant to comment on their condition, one that is sickly or disabled. And there's no doubt that this man that we've met has a weak body. And so this is an appropriate description given the way the word developed. This, this is describing him accurately. And as we'll see, it, it's an appropriate description not only of the man's physical condition, but of the man's character as well. Now, hear me. I'm not saying the man is a villain. The, the one, man who's healed, he is not a villain, and we need to, to not do that. Many commentators simply call him dull. Okay? They, they call him dull. What they mean is, in terms of his character, it's dull. It, it's not... He's not that sharp, okay? It'd be where we would think, okay, not the sharpest knife in the drawer. That's, that's kind of the way commentators see him. And, and there's a weakness to how he operates that we have to do well not to look down on, okay? We need to not, you know, kind of put our noses up in the air and look down on this guy, but we also have to be careful not to miss it. But if we're talking about weakness of character, okay, we see the weakness of the man physically, but if we're talking about weakness of character, then the spotlight is squarely on the Jewish leaders, Okay, squarely on the Jewish leaders. I want you to see the weakness of the Jewish leaders. The man is healed, and there's likely this commotion of excitement. Right? He's just been healed. He's picking up his mat. He's going. And, and there's this large group of ping, people hanging out by the poolside. And, and so now this big hubbub happens, so much so that Jesus is able to slip away from the crowd. And you'd think if anything would catch the attention of these Jewish leaders, it would be that a man who was disabled for 38 years has been miraculously healed. You'd think that would be the headline. But where's their focus? It's on a mat, right? I mean, it's on the bedroll that this guy has, has just picked up. It's crazy. And so, so what happens is that the man defends himself by laying responsibility on the man who healed him. He's like, I, I, that guy told me to, right? And then what question do they ask in response? Wait, wait, a man healed you? That's amazing. Who is it? Who, who healed you, right? That's not the question. Instead, their question is, who told you you could do that? Who told you you could pick up that bedroll and, and walk off? I mean, their focus, I mean, they're living up to Jesus' description of them later on. Later on, Matthew 23, 
He's talking to a similar group, maybe not the same guys, but similar group. He says, blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down a camel. The man who was healed, he, he suffered from a physical weakness. These guys suffer from spiritual weakness. In fact, they, they suffer from spiritual constipation, Jesus says. That's what's going on. Big problem in these guys' character, the things that they're focusing on. Now, I, I said, don't look down too hard on the invalid. That's accurate. But it's more difficult to not look down on these guys. It's a little harder not to look down on them. But all of us need to recognize our own weakness. Recognize your own shortcomings, right? Whether physical or intellectual, but also each of us has a tendency to miss what's most important and even worse, to focus on what's really not important. That's this thing that exists for all of us. Why? What the Bible says is that we all, as humans, suffer from a massive vulnerability. It's described in Jeremiah 17. It says the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Our heart, again, biblically speaking, is is not just the organ beating in our chest, but it's the decision-making center of our lives. It's describing what goes on. How do you make decisions? How do you think, feel, all the things that go into why you decide to do this or that? So when we're talking heart, we're not just talking about that little thing you can cut out and make a little valentine of. We're we're talking about how do I live my life? And what we're told is, on its own, it can't be trusted. And on our own, we can't fix it. But there's one who does understand the heart. Jeremiah continues, speaking on behalf of God himself, and he, he tells us, I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. And so we find as God is saying he's capable of examining, of testing the heart. He, he can figure out what's going on inside of us. And the implication is, and we see it played out throughout the rest of Scripture, is that he is not only capable to see what's going on, diagnose what's happening, but he is capable and willing to fix it. That's the more important thing. He can fix it. He can give us the strength that we can't muster on our own. Which leads us back to what we've just witnessed take place. Okay? With that in mind, there's this vulnerability that we all have. We all experience weakness. What was Jesus doing? Well, when he healed that disabled man, two things I think we need to, to take away. One, when he healed the man, he displayed uncommon strength. Uncommon strength. And we, we've, we've taken note of it already. He, he has the strength to heal. Again, verse 8, what's he tell the man? Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And what takes place instantly, that man is healed. Now, what we watched when I started today was amazing. I mean, amazing. The, the strides of, of science, incredible. But let's not miss that what we're, what's described here is vastly different than what we witnessed on that video. This is instantly, the man not just got up and took a few wobbly steps, not Jesus picked him up by his collar and sort of dragged him around the pool. No, instantly the man got up and was strong enough to then bend over. I mean, think about what it takes. Maybe he just touches his toes and shows off flexibility. I don't know. Maybe he has to a little bend. He gets down and he picks up that mat and then he walks away through a crowd. This is extraordinary. That's the kind of power Jesus displays that that he has. 
But even more extraordinary is the strength that he demonstrates when he starts a necessary conflict. I want you to see this. I think let's be amazed by what he's done in healing this man, but but notice where this whole thing goes. Remember, he picked the man intentionally. There's a whole crowd, and he picks one man to heal. And, and then when does he do it? He does it on the Sabbath. And, and what's the, who's there taking notice? Well, the Jewish leaders. And so the result is, where there was just some curiosity about Jesus' ministry, some curiosity about who this guy might be and, and what he might be all about, all of a sudden now, curiosity gives way to conflict. Look what happens next. Verse 14, it says, After this, Jesus found him in the temple, talking about the man that was healed, and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore, so that something worse doesn't happen to you. And the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And once again, the invalid is not a villain, but he's more than just physically weak. And we'll look at that specific statement Jesus makes to him, right? Don't sin anymore. Well, what's that all about? We'll get to that in a couple weeks as we look at another sign. But for now, I just want you to understand that once he learns of Jesus' identity, he doesn't report him immediately to the Jews, uh, to the Jewish leaders, because he believes that they're going to, like, they want to celebrate him. Right? He, he knows <laughs> they're not looking to throw him a party. They're, they're looking, they're interested in this guy. And, and he does this. Because he knows that they gave him a hard time, and by deflecting the responsibility to Jesus, he'll keep their attention off of him. I mean, he's just, it's self-protective. He's just, just taking care of himself. Not a terrible guy. He doesn't know exactly what's in store for Jesus, but Jesus does. And so, meanwhile, the Jewish leaders, with their weak character and puny perspective, they are threatened, and they begin to oppose Jesus. And I want us to make no mistake, Jesus has set up this showdown. It shows his strength in an uncommon way to demonstrate that he is no common man. In fact, he is, as John intends for us to discover and believe, what he's doing here is he's telling us what he told us hundreds of years before through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 46, 9, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and no one is like me. This is what Jesus wants us to come to understand. So, When Jesus heals the disabled man, he is displaying uncommon strength. But he's doing that in order to help us know, us who are weak, know that he offered, and he still offers, unimaginable rest. Unmatched rest. See how it plays out. Verse 17. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I'm working also. And this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, they begin to to get their feathers ruffled, begin to persecute Jesus. And he could have said, he could have responded and said, you know, I haven't broken the Sabbath. And that would be accurate. In fact, you look ahead, you read ahead in John 7, he explains it a bit. He gets into more of the the nuts and bolts of that. But instead of saying, I haven't broken the Sabbath and talking about, you know, kind of in negative terms what he hasn't done, instead positively he says, my father works on the Sabbath, and so do I. As a result, so do I. 
And immediately they know that he is not referring to his earthly father. Whether they know that Joseph is, is dead or not at this point, doesn't matter. They immediately know he's not talking about his carpentry job. He's referring to the only one with permission to work on the Sabbath, and that is God himself. Jesus is working on the Sabbath, but he's doing a special kind of work. He's doing the work of providing and protecting and healing, the kind of work that is life-giving. Where What these Jewish leaders have in mind is that the Sabbath is about kind of shrinking things down and making sure you stay, everything stays just, just good and dandy. Jesus says, no, 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 there's something far greater going on that this is all about. Now, why? Why is he doing the work? To show that he is the Son of God, which they know means that he is claiming to be God. That's the claim, and they get it. You know, there are a few things I've found over the years, there are a few things more restful than sitting by a fire. It's pretty restful. Now, unless... The smoke is like chasing you around the fire, right? That's like annoying and not, not very fun. But if the fire can get going and the, the conditions are right and you can just sit there and enjoy sitting by the fire, watching the flames dance, man, that's, that's a pretty restful day or a pretty restful night. And I'm not, you know, I'm not super fire starter guy, but there, there, I do know there are a lot of ways to start a fire. But in every case, you need a couple key ingredients. Namely, you need a spark and you need kindling. And Jesus, what he's done here is he's brought together the perfect kindling of healing a man who would likely be self-protective and the Sabbath day when the Jewish leaders would be paying attention and he brings all that together in order to spark a fire that he will fan into flame that will get him killed. We said it when he did the first sign. He knew what was going to be on the back end of that. But here even more. He's now creating this situation knowing this is going to lead him to the cross. But he he doesn't make this claim to be God because he's a glutton for punishment. He does it because it's the truth. He does it because he is the truth. And he says elsewhere, to know the truth is to be set free. And to be free, in biblical terms, is to know rest. True freedom, it's rest, both now and for all time. And so he says later in John 5, verse 24, he says, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. I underlined two words, has and has he says, you, you, you hear me and you believe me, you ha- that person already has eternal life. Eternal life's not for way out there, it's for right now. See, far worse than living 38 years without use of your legs is spending all of eternity spiritually dead. And this is what Jesus has come to fix. And Jesus is using the healing of this man to point to this greater rest. Again, a rest that starts now. And so what's the eternal life that he's offering? He says it like this beautifully in Matthew 11. He says, come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, 
and I will give you rest. He says, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I ask you, friends, are you weary? Are you burdened and aware of your weakness? I mean, really. Do, do you know you're weak? I mean, will you admit, yeah, I don't have it all figured out. I mean, let, let's just put a crack. Maybe you got 99%. There's still something. Jesus says, I will give you rest. I want you to notice, without, I wanted to preach about four sermons this week, okay? We had to reduce it to, to one, and we're, we're bringing this one, about to land the plane here. But, but I want you to notice three things. First, he says, come to me. It's personal. He doesn't say, hey, I got this really great program I've worked out. I want you to come to this program. He doesn't say, you know, I'm establishing this really excellent religion. Compared to all the other religions, this one's so much better. Come to my religion. Jesus says, come to me. And then he says, take up my yoke. Now, this is interesting. It's rest that involves strapping on a yoke. Okay, I want you to see a picture, just so we know what we're talking about. Two oxen in a yoke. Okay, so you see this thing, right? These, these, I don't know about you. That doesn't look like, man, I want to walk around with my head in one of those things. Okay? But Jesus uses this metaphor. And he says, you want to find rest? You're going to take up my yoke. Now, that's interesting because the reason you put the oxen in that thing is so that they will do work. Jesus, you just offered rest. Now you want me to go to work? What's going on? But he goes on, he says, his yoke is so easy and his burden is so light. Really what he's getting at is that instead of weighing you down, this yoke actually lifts you up. And you go, how is that possible? I mean, what do these two things have to rest and work? What do those have to do with each other? And how can putting a yoke on actually be restful? How can it, how can it be light, be a non-yoke? Well, look at the third thing he says. He says, come to me, take up my yoke. Then he says, learn from me. Learn from me. And we tend to talk about trusting Jesus as making him your boss. And, and that's fine. It, it, it fits on some level. I personally, I think it only goes so far, and I, I think we have to be careful because most of us, unfortunately, you say, hey, Jesus is now my boss. You go, oh, I don't really like my boss that much. Like, he's okay. Now, maybe you don't have that situation. But that's one of the, the drawbacks to that. More importantly is that we, we tend to see boss as just the person who bosses us around. And that's part of why it's, it's, an, it's a helpful way of talking about it because we do recognize Jesus. He says, I am Lord which maybe a better understanding is he is king. He, what he says goes, and we need to recognize that. When Jesus comes and says, look, I'm, I'm lowly and humble and hard, he's not saying, so just walk all over me and I'll just do whatever you want me to do. That's not the point. You come to him, you come to him on his terms. But we tend to think boss, we think, oh, it's just a person who gives me a job. And so here Jesus is just, he's just going to give you a new job. And this one will be better than the job you've had. He's saying far more than that. He's not simply giving you a different job, saying, you know, trust me, this will be great, you'll really enjoy it. He says something far greater, and author Tom Nelson explains it beautifully. I just want you to hear 
him describe it. He says, the agrarian-based metaphor that Jesus uses captures, we can just go back to that picture of the oxen. The agrarian-based metaphor that Jesus uses captures the first century reality that when a farmer wanted to train a new ox, he asked the village carpenter to custom make a yoke specifically for training. A properly designed yoke was custom-fitted both for the mature master ox and the immature novice ox. And when the time came for the young ox to be trained, the farmer would place the young ox in the training yoke next to the master ox. And day after day, walking eyeball to eyeball with the mature ox, the young ox would learn from the mature ox and over time become just like the mature ox. See, when Jesus says, when he invites us, take on his yoke, he means the one that he's wearing. It's not just the, the sort of you know, disinterested boss saying, oh, take you, I want you to take this, this work away from me. This is him saying, no, 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 I'm doing work and I want you to join me in my work. What he wants us to teach us is what he, in humbling himself and becoming a human being, has learned. He says in verse 17, my father is still working and I'm working also. I see what he's doing. He says in verse 19, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. It's an invitation to learn from him, eye to eye, shoulder to shoulder, to join in the work that Jesus himself has done. And he says, if I'm the one that is the master ox, then this yoke is light. Because I'm doing the work, and yet I'm training you to join me in it. We're going to look at this idea of Sabbath in more detail as we go on through John's gospel because it is a mega theme of all that Jesus is doing. It's, it's a theme of all that he's done, all that he intends to do. But, but today, I simply want us to see that rest starts with learning from Jesus. He says in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so if you have trusted Jesus for eternal life, I want you to know that the way that you enjoy that life is by daily and weekly setting aside time to learn from Jesus. And you do that by spending time in his word and joining in his work by serving others. That kind of life is meant to be life-giving, just like what Jesus did when he healed this guy. And again, we're going to look at that more fully in the coming weeks. But today, I want to encourage you, again, whether, you know, all ages... I want to encourage you just one step to simply either memorize Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, or, or write it on a, a note card, and take a walk this week. Yeah, I've, just, I've had to take a lot of walks this week, just even pacing around my office. Just take a walk this week and think about what Jesus has offered here, and thank him, and pray for opportunities to join him in the work that he's doing, because he says that as we join him in his work, as we see what he's doing, what he sees the Father doing, that that there's rest in that. But if you're here and you're not sure what to make of Jesus or the idea of being his apprentice, if this is all still feeling a little, eh, I don't know, weird, I get it. I wasn't always, I wasn't born preaching here, okay? That's not how this has worked. But I want you to know Jesus is offering you healing and rest for your soul. The question you have to wrestle down, I mean, whether it's here or, or whatever, but at some point in your life, you have to wrestle this down. Is, is there anything or anyone else 
who has made such a promise and done so much to prove that it or he is qualified to deliver on that promise. You find somebody else, you find something else that promises as much and delivers as much as Jesus has. After you really look at all that that means, great, be happy to talk. I'd love to hear about that, really. But I think what you're going to find is what John, who knew Jesus, discovered. There's no one like him. So physically, intellectually, and especially spiritually, each of our lives is marked by weakness. But Jesus possesses uncommon strength, and he can give us unmatched rest. And so may you and I come to Jesus to rest. And may we learn from Jesus how to rest as we join him in his work. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you know our weakness and it doesn't scare you off. You're not, it, it's offensive to you in a certain way because our weakness is marked by an actual rebellion against you, but even then, you don't turn away from us. Instead, you, you extend this offer of life, freedom, rest. And so I praise you for that, and I pray that you would help us individually and collectively as a people to know that rest as we learn from you and as we engage in the work that you want to do through us. Help us, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day.